0: Today's passage comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 7 to 15, and chapter 7, verse 1. Verse 7 is where we're beginning. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. They began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like that of an angel. Are these things true? The high priest asked. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Khan Sohi. He he had me scared, though, there for a moment. I thought I was preaching on the wrong passage. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) This Friday and Saturday, we had a men's retreat. Uh, It was a really, really good time up at Forest Home. About 40 of us guys were up there. This weekend, So uh, that's where I was like, I'm still waking up a little bit. It was a, a great weekend. We're all a little bit tired. If you see tired faces on some of the men, that's, that's probably why. Um, this morning, we're reading and looking at uh, Acts chapter 7. And if, if you're wondering why there are extra pages in our bulletin, and wondering, are we going to read the whole text of Acts chapter 7? The answer is yes. We'll do that in just a moment, but I want to talk about this uh, before we read the rest of the text. This is the story of Stephen. He's the first Christian martyr. We just read the beginning of his story. In the middle is his sermon, and at the end is the account of his death. This is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and depending on what you count and how you count, this is the longest sermon in, in the whole Bible, Stephen's Sermon. That doesn't necessarily mean my sermon is going to be the longest sermon you've ever heard, hopefully not. But I wanted to start uh, with setting up the context for the sermon. We are going to spend most of our time looking at the actual sermon, but I want to say this, and I'm going to be honest, I never really liked this sermon and so in planning for this series on the book of Acts, Acts 1 through 12, from the very beginning and all the way up until a few weeks ago, I said, we're just going to skip by this sermon because it's way too long. <laughs> the sermon is too long. And honestly, I felt like it didn't make sense to me. I didn't see the value of this sermon. But then a couple weeks ago when I was preparing for last week's sermon, a few things happened. I started to see how this sermon fits into the larger book of Acts and the story of the book of Acts. That was the first thing that happened for me. And the second thing, as I began to see that, I started to see how this sermon fits into the story of every person's life and in my life, too. And so I was thinking, oh, great. I can't pass over this. It's long, but we have to look at this. How does it fit into the book of Acts? Uh, Pastor E.C. was saying Acts is all about the gospel going deep and then the gospel going out. The gospel goes deep into us. We learn it. We soak in it. We soak in it together in community. Acts shows us how that happens. Acts 6 is a transition in the story of the book of Acts about how the gospel can go deep in one particular church and not just stay in that one church and one place but go out into new places and into new people's lives. So this is a transition between the gospel going deep in one church and going out from that same church. Acts 7 then gives us, here's a fancy way of saying it, a theology of decentralization. That's a very nerdy way of saying why God doesn't want us just to stay in one city and in one place, to stay to ourselves as the church. He's not a God who stays put with the church He's not a God who says, stay put for yourself if you are of his people, but a God who goes out and a God who sends out. So, this sermon explains how it is a part of God's plan, how the church began to go out, and how the message of Jesus began to spread throughout all of the ancient Roman world. That's how it fits into the book of Acts, but how does it fit into our lives? I want to say this before we read it, just so you can start looking for things as we hear this sermon. Nine times in this sermon, You'll see the phrase, our ancestors, our ancestors. Stephen starts this sermon. You can look at right there under for reference, Acts 7 too. He says, brothers and fathers, my family, let me tell you the story of our ancestors. This is our family story. When we think about our ancestry, our family story. It tells us where we came from. And from knowing where we came from, we get a sense of of who we are, our identity. There's a renewed interest, it seems to me, based on maybe the advertisements out there. If you've seen some of the commercials for Ancestry.com, it's intriguing. It makes me want to go on and log on. They can take your DNA. They can do the research for you. And they can tell you, here's where you came from. Here's who your ancestors were. Here is their story. One of the ads from Ancestry.com has a little quote. It said, after finding out the mischievous side of my great-grandfather, I said, I'm going to try something different. you can be inspired by those stories to come out of your comfort zone. And then there was another commercial. Uh, it was a powerful commercial about somebody finding out that their great ancestor on, uh, was, a, was this amazing, strong queen. And they show this queen coming up uh, to all these people, and everybody's like bowing down for her. And the person says, when I found you in my story, I found out where my strength comes from. I realized this week that Stephen, here in Acts chapter 7, is not just explaining the story of the Old Testament. When he says our ancestors, he's also giving us an understanding of our own story. This is everyone's story in action. I hope to show you that this morning. So if you're here exploring the Christian faith and and you have some doubts, you still have some questions, I'd ask you to consider this this morning. How does what Stephen says here help you make sense of your own story and God's place in your story? I ask you to consider that. Christians here this morning, my Christian friends, we tend to forget our story. When we do forget our story, we tend to become ingrown self-focused. We tend to become self-righteous and very afraid to go out. We need to know the story of our ancestors and how it is our story. So we're about to read this. There was an accusation made against this man, Stephen. He was talking about Jesus and they said, what you are saying about Jesus, you are speaking against the temple and you are speaking against the law. Did you see that? That's the accusation. It doesn't get any more serious than that for a Jewish person. Those were the two most important things for a Jewish person in this day. They said, you're speaking against that. And Stephen here in the sermon is going to say his defense to those charges. And he's going to say, no, I am not speaking against the temple or the law. I am more for the temple and the law than you are. I'm not just for the temple itself or the law itself or the commands all by themselves, but I'm all about what the temple and the law are for and how they're fulfilled, how they're completed, how they come to their intended purpose in the story through Jesus Christ. So let's read it. Are we ready? Page four in the bulletin, you can pull out your Bibles, Acts 7, starting in verse 2. Here is Stephen's sermon, brothers, brothers, "'And fathers,' he replied, "'Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham "'when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, "'and said to him, "'Leave your country and relatives. "'Come to the land that I will show you.' "'Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. "'From there, after his father died, "'God had him moved to this land in which you are now living. "'He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground.' But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way, his descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. That was Abraham's story, now Joseph. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and a great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all. Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had. Bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and they multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, now we move to Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put aside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue. He avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you as ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, Where he became the father of two sons, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He was approaching to look at it. The voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and judge? This one God sent his ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who is in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our ancestors, he received living oracles to give to us. Now we're hearing the story of the giving of the law. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to the worship, the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, house of Israel, Did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images you made to worship, so I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them. Until the days of David, and now we're in the days of David, he found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And now Stephen addresses his listeners. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man's soul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. After saying this, he died. What can we learn from this sermon? There's a lot going on there. I want to look at three things. We're going to go through each one of these Three things Stephen's sermon shows us about our stories. The search for God, the flight from God, and the God who goes out. The search for God first. Here's how Stephen starts his defense. Did you see? He said, listen, the God of glory appeared. Notice that Stephen doesn't say, You want a defense of what I've been saying? Point one, let me defend the temple, what I'm saying about the temple. Point two, let me talk about the law. He says, first of all, the starting point, listen, the God of glory. Let's remember, Stephen is saying, what we're talking about here. Let's remember who we are talking about here. We're talking about him, the God of glory. Real quick, my Christian friends, I just want to say this. There's nothing worse than debates and arguments we have with each other or ways that we can speak about God to those who don't believe that forget God, that forget who it is that we're talking about. He is the God of glory. What is glory? What does that mean that he is the God of glory? God's glory is his transcendence. He is above us in every way. He is more weighty than anything in this life. More important, more valuable. He is more beautiful in splendor and perfection than anything we could ever experience or imagine. That is God's glory. And Stephen says, first of all, let's remember the God of glory. Three things about this God of glory as I would summarize Stephen's statements about him. The first thing he says is God cannot be confined. Notice the places mentioned throughout Stephen's sermon. He talks about Abraham's story. He says, God met Abraham in Mesopotamia, in Haran, in the land of the Chaldeans, verses 2 through 4. On his whole journey as a sojourner, as an alien, he didn't have a place, let alone a temple. But God met him. The God of glory was with him. Joseph's life God was with Joseph in Egypt, verses 10 and 11. What about Moses? God appeared to him in this land called Midian way out in the Arabian Peninsula, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. We have Mesopotamia, Haran, the land of the Chaldeans, Egypt, Midian, Mount Sinai. All those places have one thing in common. They're not Jerusalem, and they're not the temple, yet God was there in the fullness of his glory. God's presence was with the alien in a foreign land, with Joseph in what was considered to the Jews, enemy territory, Egypt, and with Moses in the desert. Stephen is saying God cannot be contained. God's glory was never meant to be confined to one place and one people. Don't you know or remember the story, the greater story of the temple in the Old Testament? It was to be the starting point, to take God's glory to all the earth and to all peoples. This is why Jesus went into the temple he started turning over tables and he said, my house is supposed to be the house of prayer for all nations. This is not about one place or one people. This is about the glory of God being known by all peoples. So God is not a stationary God. Did you notice? God is always on the move. He's always on the move out. And the people of God, therefore the goal of the people of God is not to build walls of confinement around God, but to follow God. On his move out. God cannot be confined. God also cannot be predicted. Where can we find this God of glory? The answer Stephen gives us is not where we think we will. And not where we expect him to be. And definitely never where we demand him to be. Remember our story, he says. God was not with the powerful and the mighty. Those who thought they had him figured out. God was with the wanderer, Abraham. He was with the sufferer. Joseph and the rejected Moses, God's glory always showed up in ways that surprised. It cannot be predicted. When we think about this in our lives, wherever we are in our journey of faith, where is God? Where is God in my story? Stephen would tell us we find him when often when we think we're lost and we're wandering. We find him often when we think he's abandoned us in our suffering. We'll find him there. We'll find him in the wilderness. God cannot be predicted. He shows up in the most surprising places. He cannot be confined. He cannot be predicted. And Stephen also says, God cannot be manufactured. He repeats this phrase, if you notice, made with hands. A few times in the sermon, you can look at verse 41 or 48. To manufacture something is to make it by hand. Comes from the Latin, manu and factum, hands make. Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah at the end of his sermon in verse 50, where God says, did not my hand make all these things? So how do you think you can build me a house? The God who manufactured all things says to us, you cannot manufacture my presence. Verse 48, God does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. And in the temple, this was what was shocking to the people of the time, and this should have some shock value to us. In the temple, this was God's idea. In the temple, something God-given can turn into something man-made. We'll come back to that later. There's another sermon in Acts 17, later on, the Apostle Paul, he's actually giving a little bit more of a lecture to the philosophers in Athens, Greece, in 17, uh, verses 24 through 27. He's speaking to the philosophers in Athens about the temples that he sees in that Greek city. And I want you to read to you what he says. Notice how similar it is to some of the things that Stephen said, and to a very different audience. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth. He has determined the appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him. He is not far from each one of us. Paul says, I see what's going on here in all these temples and all these things you've manufactured. You are searching for God. You are searching for the God of glory. We all are, but He cannot be manufactured. When you have a toy or a small appliance or something that you buy, usually there's a label, right, or a sticker or or an imprint that says made in "Made in China, in Mexico, in the USA, tells us where it was manufactured. Stephen is saying in our search for God, we need to regularly check the manufacture label on our view of God, on our conception of God, and ask ourselves, is this a God that I've made or is this the God who's made me? Our search for God will not be, cannot be satisfied in God's that we manufacture. Just a thought here, application thought. Um, every ancient culture had temples, right? I was Googling it this week. I just put ancient temples. And it's fascinating to see all the different architecture, all the different temples from the native people of the Americas to Egypt to the ancient people of um, in the, in the ancient Near East, to India, to Europe. The story of every culture is filled with all these temples that were built. There was a search for God in every culture, a search for the transcendent, for some glory beyond us. And you might be saying, well, that was the ancient world. We don't build temples anymore. What about in the modern secular world? Aren't we past The age of temples. And let me just ask you to consider something. I don't think we are. In those days, the the temple was the tallest and the largest building in in the community, in the city. What are our largest and tallest buildings? I was thinking about that. Aren't they uh, our places to shop? Our places to be entertained, our stadiums. Our places to work, the tallest buildings we make. I would suggest and submit to us all that in all these places we're looking to transcend normal earthly life. We're looking for glory beyond us to go up to search for transcendence. The story of the Bible is that the great search in everyone's story is to see the glory of God. God himself. What is the chief end of man? We have a catechism that summarizes our theology. What is the chief end of man? The reason God made man, it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we were made. That's what we're searching for in all of our lives. In our search for God, for his glory, we all tend We all tend, we all tend to a God that we can confine, that we can predict, and that we can manufacture. Why is that? Every person searches for the glory of God, but let me move to point two. Every person runs from the glory of God, the flight from God. This is the paradox in everyone's story. In Israel's story, those most zealous in their search for God, the most religious people, that Stephen is speaking to, the ones who are supposed to be the guardians of his glory are the same people. When given glimpses of that glory, they flee from it. They resist it. Let me show you that from Stephen's sermon. There are two ways that both they and we flee from the glory of God. This is in their story, and this is in all of our stories. There's two two directions you can go, and they go in both of these directions. We can flee from God into religion. And we can flee from God into irreligion. Let me talk about the irreligious flight from God first. Where is this? Look at verses 38 and through 43. That's on the bottom of page 5 and then the rest of page 6. When God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, he's telling them, this is our story. Remember this part of our story. And gave the people the Torah, the law. The living oracles, verse 38 says, what happened? Moses said, do you remember what happened? Our ancestors were unwilling to obey. They pushed him aside. They turned their hearts back to Egypt and they looked to Aaron and said, can you make us a new God? We want a different God. The other guy, Moses, uh, the God with that law thing that he's talking about, we don't know what's happened to them. As soon as this God who had rescued them, who had fed them and sustained them in the wilderness, as soon as he said, here is my law, they said, no, thank you. We're going to go make another God, a new God. And they celebrated what their hands had made. Verses 41 and 43 says these were images that they made to worship now you might be thinking, aren't we talking about the irreligious flight from God? How is making gods and idols irreligious? Let me explain that. Isn't irreligion any time we make up our own values and our own rules for life? Religion is, is all about rules and all about these values and it imposed upon me. And so many of us have chosen, and many of us in our culture say, "I'm not about that religion." I don't want your values and rules imposed upon me. I'm going to make my own values and my own rules and live by those. That's the heart of irreligion. I don't want a God that tells me what to do. When we manufacture a God, we will always end up manufacturing a God that's just like us. He seems to always be on our side, no matter what the issue He seems to always tell us that we are right and never wrong. He never seems to challenge us or ask us to do things or believe things that are against our preferences and our will. And Stephen says, brothers and fathers, don't you see our story? We've been running from God. We've been running from his law all these years. Verse 53, we received the law, yes, but we haven't kept it. That's the irreligious flight from God. Now, the irreligious flight from God and the religious flight from God look very different on the outside. Worship of idols on the one hand and a zeal for God's temple and God's law on the other hand. But they are both, Stephen says, at the root, running from God. They are both at the root the same. Stephen's charge was the temple, the center of the Jewish faith, had become idolatrous. Even when something God has given to reveal his glory, we can take it, we can distort it, we can remake it into man-made religion. That's what Stephen said happened to the temple. It was God's idea, but it had become empty. When Jesus said in Matthew 12, 46, he said, something greater than the temple is here. What was he saying? He was saying the God of glory is here. I am he. But people said, well, we prefer... The temple. And what was happening was they were actually running from God into the temple, not running to God in the temple. All throughout Stephen's uh, sermon, he gives us the signs. How do we know if we are just fleeing into religion, away from the God of glory? Here are a few signs that Stephen points out it's when we're more focused on other people breaking the law and the rules then how far short we fall from the glory of God ourselves and the law of love that he has given to us. Stephen says, don't you see our story? We've always fallen short. We're so focused on other people's sin. How far people out there are from God. That's just a form of fleeing from God. Stephen also says there's a focus on external behavior, but there's no inward reality. Verse 51, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. What does that mean? It means you keep the letter of the law, you follow the law externally, you look good and right and religious on the outside, but there's no inward reality. This can happen to us when we lose sight of the point of our spiritual activity and our obedience. Good things can become empty of God. It can be Bible study, church activity, any number of things. It can even be our morality and our goodness becomes empty of God. They can become all ways that we flee away from him. Third sign, Stephen said, when people, he says the prophets, show you your inconsistency, instead of repentance and sorrow, instead of seeing, yes, you're right, I don't live up to the law, instead of that, you get angry and you become even more self-righteous. Stephen says, don't you see this in our story? The temple, it's empty of God's glory. It's not about him, it's about us. It's the way we've been hiding behind our religion. We are lawbreakers since the very beginning. So let me pause and ask you, how in your story do you see yourself reaching and straining for God's glory, transcendence, something beyond, something outside of you? But how do you see yourself fleeing? Fleeing away from God into irreligion or into religion? Stephen says to all his audience, for all the ways you think you're defending God and his word, you've missed. Why is this thing so long, The sermon so long? He's telling them their story saying, you've missed the heart of the story, the Old Testament. You don't even know really what it's about. It makes all the difference. When we remember our story, it helps us answer this question. It brings this question actually to the forefront. Is God a God that stays in and says, come to me? Or is he a God who goes out and says, I am coming to you? Which one is it? How we think about God, is he a God who stays in or a God who goes out? A God who stays in says this, come and search for me and find me. If you are good enough, if you are a good person, then I will let you into my glory. But the story of the Bible is the story of God's search for and flight to us. He is a God who goes out. Abraham, Joseph, Moses were they looking for God? Did you hear their stories? God went in and found them Abraham, Joseph, Moses. He came looking for them. But the story also shows us what happens when God finds someone. It's what happened to Moses. Look at verse 32. Turn there. It's on page five. This was probably the most dramatic moment of the God of glory showing up. It was in a burning bush. Moses wasn't expecting it. Here God came to him. He said, I am the God of your ancestors. And then it says, Moses began to tremble. He did not dare to even look. This is the repeated pattern in scripture. When God shows up in all his glory, it's what we've been searching for all of our lives, but we want to run away. The prophet Isaiah was given a vision of God's glory in Isaiah chapter six. It says, he saw the Lord, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It was a song all around God. His glory fills the whole earth. And Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm ruined. And so the story is that no one could stand. No one could look. No one could speak when God found them. They wanted to run away. But what happened here with Stephen? It says at the end of the text, Stephen saw the glory of God, just like Isaiah, and the heavens were open to him. Why wasn't Stephen undone, trembling, and running away? It's because of what his sermon was all about. It's there on page six. I want you to see this. Verse 52. and all are, they're fleeing from God, and all they're resisting from God. He says, you even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose murderers and betrayers you have now become. Stephen was saying the whole Bible, our whole story is about the coming of the righteous one. The righteous one who comes to find us. This is what the story is all about. This is the one who comes to bring us into God's glorious presence so we won't flee. What Stephen is doing, I'm going to put it up here. One more passage for us to read, and it's very, very important that we get this. He says, the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? He was spoken about by the prophet Isaiah in 53. Let's put that passage up. Isaiah 53, 11 through 12. Who is the righteous one? Well, it's one who out of the anguish of his soul shall see and be satisfied, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he's poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what the whole story was all about the coming of a righteous one. He will make many to be righteous, like him. How? By bearing their sins, by pouring himself out, his soul to death, by being numbered as a rebel, as one who flees from God. He was treated like that, by bearing the sin of the rebels, by interceding for them. It says, out of this anguish, the righteous one will see and be satisfied. What will he see? What will the righteous one see and bring him satisfaction? He will see that he gets to share what he has with many. What makes it all worth it to him? Seeing us come home to the glory of God. This is Jesus, friends. Jesus is God coming out for us out of his glory to bear our sin, to make us righteous, to bring us into his glory. In Jesus, the search for God is over. In Jesus, the flight from God is over. Stephen saw the glory of God, the heavens opened up, the presence of God, it didn't undo him. He didn't run, instead it filled him with a joy and a calm, somehow a joy and a calm that was greater than even the enemies that were rushing him his suffering, and his death. It filled him with forgiveness for his enemies. He saw the glory of God. He didn't go face down. He wasn't trembling. Instead, he said, look, I'm being welcomed. There's Jesus. And what does it say about Jesus? He was standing at the right hand of God. As far as I know, this is the only place that says Jesus was standing up. Usually, he's sitting at the right hand of God. It's his place of ruling and reigning. That's the image we're given. But here he's standing Have you ever walked into a room or been in a room when a guest of honor enters and everybody stands? That's what you're supposed to do for the President of the United States. When the President enters the room, everyone stands. When a bride comes down the aisle, when I do a wedding, I say, Rise for the bride. It's out of honor, it's out of respect. Instead of Stephen falling down, here Jesus is standing up to welcome him into the glory of God. Friends, when our faith is in Jesus, where he is, is where we are. Where he is is where we belong and where we are welcomed. He's covered our sins. He's borne our sins. He's poured himself out for all our law-breaking, all our religious hiding. And fleeing, and he makes us righteous like he is. So we can be brought not just into the glory of God, but at the very right hand of God, the place of honor, the place of respect. In Jesus, the gospel is that's where we belong, right at the right hand of the God of glory. What does this mean? Final thoughts. Friends, it means in our sin, in our failure, and in our shame, we never, ever have to run away from God. We can always run to God. By faith in Jesus, we never have to run away from God, no matter what it is that we're dealing with, that we've done, we can always run to God. And he will welcome us into his glory at his right hand to assure us of his love, to comfort us. We're always welcome there. In our suffering and even unto our death, we can have peace. God is with us to the end. In opposition, we can grant forgiveness like Stephen did here. Greater than our desire to be right, our desire is that others may know this God who's gone out for us. And that's my final thought. As we're thinking about going out, what does that mean as a church? Why do we go out? Why don't we just stay comfortable and just do our thing here? My Christian friends, consider this. If everyone is searching for God but can't find him, if everyone is fleeing from God but is afraid to find him, then as Christians, we get to show and we get to tell people Here is where you can find God. You don't have to flee from him. You have nothing to be afraid of. The God of glory has come out for you. This is the good news. The good news of how God welcomes us in. And so we get to welcome others in. God is a God who sends us out. In His strength, in His power to welcome others in. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray now that as we are considering the sermon we read from. Stephen, as we're considering our own story, I pray you would help us see how we are at work searching from you. We are searching for you in our hearts, in the deepest parts of our soul, in the things that often drive us and shape us, that we are searching for you. And I pray you would show us the ways that we are, are fleeing from you, And that you would bring home to us deep into the deepest places of our hearts. That you are a God who has come out to find us, to bring us home, to welcome us in even to your glory. That which we were made to enjoy. That which puts our souls finally at rest. Give us fresh amazement and wonder that you have done that for us in your son Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.